I'm Vincent Williams. I'm Len Webb. And we're your hosts of The Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast, every Black film ever made. This is our podcast documentary, The Class of 1989. 1989 was an important year in film when Hollywood would change forever thanks to six films about race. Some are obvious, like Do the Right Thing, Harlem Nights, and Glory. A few might surprise you, like A Dry White Season, Lean on Me, and Driving Miss Daisy. Join us as we explore what happened and what changed because of the class of 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege and honor to officially introduce for the first time graduating class. There's only one boss in this place, and that's me, the HNIC. Much a matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to blow your pinky toe. Oh, now you're going to shoot me in my pinky toe. You need to show me. Let me tell you the story. Right hand, left hand, good and evil. Hate, love, these five things, they go straight to the soul of man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This man should fall. Who will lift the flag and carry on? I will. 1989 is a transitional year for black film, but as is often the case when we talk about black film and black culture in general, the question of audience comes up. Who's the film for? What's being swept under the carpet? Is there a particular bias in the storytelling? I see it as a conflict of American nostalgia and dun-dun-dun, critical race theory. Really? Okay, obviously this is a joke about the current hysteria sweeping the land that... I don't really understand what the hysteria is all about. There's history and then there's propaganda. Well... There's always been this push and pull between the two, and it's played out in film since the birth of a nation in 1915. Writer-director D.W. Griffith adapted the 1905 Thomas Dixon Jr. novel that recontextualizes American history via the feud between the pro-Union Stonesman family and the Confederate loving Camerons. While rightly lauded for its at the time groundbreaking technical innovations such as close-ups, fade-outs, and an original orchestral score, the film portrays blacks, well, white actors in blackface, as subhuman, predatory, unintelligent, and oversexed, while propping up the Ku Klux Klan 
as America's hooded saviors, protecting American values, white women, and maintaining white supremacy. The film has been deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote, with its selection for preservation in the National Film Registry, while earning its distinction as recently as 2015 in the Washington Post as, quote, the most reprehensibly racist film in Hollywood history, end quote, that was influential for the 20th century rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. An outcry from the NAACP and African-American protests across the country were largely unsuccessful. The movie was a huge success, cementing Griffith's reputation as an innovator and the industry's first great director that is often cited as a contributor to the racial segregation rooted in our country even now in the 21st century. Birth of a Nation's False Narrative celebrated in 1915, created a telescopic view throughout the 20th century as Hollywood promoted this white lens perspective of the black experience. To a certain degree, that narrative was still being told in 1989, leading to this visceral reaction by journalist and radio host Bobby Booker to Driving Miss Daisy. I mean, the title alone lost me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a descendant of the Great Migration. I'm first generation or on the other side of that. And, and a black man who left the South for those reasons. It's just a, a matter of pride and, and giving in to what I felt Hollywood's expectations were in delivering that. There was no one in my circle or even there 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 was no conversation about driving Miss Daisy other than it and so it it just went over there. It's hard for me to bring myself to look at that situation. And it's even harder now. I have big problems with what I saw as probably one of the last uh, big, you know, Hollywood entreaties um, deliberately focusing on uh, Miss Anne and, and her antics. And it's even tougher for me now to go down that road. Now, now Miss Daisy, you, you, you say... I told you, it's two rows over that way. It says Bauer on the headstone. Bauer, yes. Now, what that look like, Miss Daisy? What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about I can't read, man. What? I can't read, Miss Daisy. Then how come I see you looking at the paper all the time? Well, that's, <laughs> that's just it. <laughs> I just be looking. Well, I, I kind of dope out what's going on from the pictures sometimes. You know your letters, don't you? Oh, yes, ma'am. I know my ABC is pretty good. I just can't read. Stop saying that. You're making me mad. Yes, if you know your letters, then you can read. You just don't know you can read. So, folks, we have a problem with the title. Obviously, someone is driving Miss Daisy, but they don't even get a name. In the title, we understand there's work to do, service to render. 
a thing is owed to Miss Daisy. And even her first name ain't your business to say. So, and I'm reading from the script here, what's wrong with driving Miss Daisy? I see how much it pains you to be objective. Well, I'm not objective. But some people had, well, interesting things to say about the film. We spoke to actor-director Bill Duke, an icon as substantial as his iconic gaze, beginning in the 70s classic Car Wash as the late-arriving militant Dwayne. My name is Abdullah Muhammad Akbar, all right? Which launched a career of scene-stealing performances and cop dramas like Kojak, Charlie's Angels, and Starsky and Hutch, and films such as Commando, Predator, and Action Jackson. I need you to represent the department at the Detroit Businessmen League's Man of the Year fundraiser. I was scheduled to attend, but I had forgotten that this is my wife's Parcheesi night. And of course, menace to society. I'm gonna ask you some real simple questions and I want some real simple answers. You understand? He then moves into directing, establishing himself as a jack of all trades with The Rage in Harlem, the film noir deep cover, and Whoopi Goldberg's blockbuster sequel, Sister Act Two, Back in the Habit. Duke is a huge admirer of Morgan Freeman's work in general, and in particular, in Driving Miss Daisy. It's interesting that you said that Morgan Freeman was phenomenal in all of his roles, and he was, and yet history has shown, and certainly our doing this project has shown that Driving Miss Daisy seems to be a polarizing film with a lot of people. I was curious, how did you receive that film? I received that as he was brilliant. You know, I know people always say, well, he was driving this white lady and it diminished um, us in terms of our image. And I don't believe that. I mean, mm -hmm. he had dignity. We're gonna have to pull over, Miss Daisy. Is something wrong with the car? No. Ain't nothing wrong with the car. I got the big excuse. What? I got to go make water. You should have thought of that back at the service station. I colored can't use the toilet at none of these service stations. Daisy, you know that. Well, there's no time to stop. We'll be in Mobile soon. You can wait. Yes. No. I mean, he didn't play uh, yes, master, yes, ma'am. He didn't. He didn't do all that. He had a job, mm -hmm. and in those days, black folks that could work, <laughs> uh, it was all right. Mm -hmm. And you know, and he didn't bow down or anything. He did what he had to do to feed his family, whatever. And I appreciated that role because he played it with dignity. See, we look at Morgan's films. Uh, there's two things you'll always recognize, his dignity and his humanity. Elizabeth Wellington, pop cultural reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, had to find her own way to driving Miss Daisy. In 1989, I was 15. I can't believe I was 15. Like, I know we didn't go see it in the movies because my mother was like, there was no way she was going to see Morgan Freeman drive a white woman around. She wasn't, she didn't want to see Easy Reader or drive a white, white woman around. 
Is that literally what she said? Yeah, she said, I'm not going to watch Easy Reader drive a, drive a white woman around. So I didn't see it until maybe I was in my 20s and I had cable. And then I didn't really watch it all the way. So mm-hmm. I didn't get it. But like, I, it's weird. I've been watching stuff from that era, like the wall, like that place. So like the Waltons, don't judge me, but like stuff like the Waltons or I don't know, any any older movie any movie that shows black people from like the early to mid 1900s like kind of growing up so the reason that miss daisy was kind of interesting to me because you know there wasn't a certain level of violence a lot of those moves those flips you know have violence and and lynching and there was there's never any endearment like the character like miss daisy was kind of like a she was a difficult woman but she was also just kind of a difficult older woman. And as I watch my old parents get older, like that's the kind of stuff that will come out of my mother's mouth almost. But then again, and and Morgan Freeman's character was just so kind, but really smart. And he would say something like, I'm 70 years old, I'm going to the bathroom. Like, you know what I mean? And then he just kind of shut it down when he needed to. So I just kind of thought that um, as far as pieces go, like in the end when he went to visit her and he actually fed her, I thought that it was, I don't know, the, the sap in me was like, oh, you know, I, I just felt like they made it through their issues, you know? And in my mind, I thought that he was going to be driving her around the whole time, but there are really not that many scenes of, there's a couple of scenes, there's scenes of them in the car, but it's not around. And he was smart enough to buy the cars, which I thought was good, or he asked for a raise. It kind of reminded me of the butler in a way, but not as, the butler kind of made me mad still but i didn't feel mad at the end of this so like lee daniels the butler the 2013 historical drama starring forrest whitaker as a white house butler who served multiple presidents over many decades people's challenges with driving miss daisy didn't have anything to do with morgan freeman's acting Elizabeth also liked that it was a period piece that didn't focus on the violence of the times. And I'm willing to bet a lot of people liked it for the same reason. Rotten Tomatoes gives the film a certified fresh 84% rating with the consensus opinion of 102 critics being, while it's fueled in part by outdated stereotypes, Driving Miss Daisy takes audiences on a heartwarming journey with a pair of outstanding actors. Celebrity film critics Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel held the film in high distinction at the time, with Ebert noting in the Chicago Sun-Times that this is a film of great love and patience, while in the Chicago Tribune, Siskel proclaimed Driving Miss Daisy one of the best films of 1989. I appreciate that a Black woman, or anyone for that matter, wouldn't want to dwell in the inherent violence of American history. But its absence, considering the period of the film, is conspicuous. This is tamer than a more fondly remembered film set, for the most part, in the same era as Driving Miss Daisy. I think you guys have what it takes to go all the way to the top. A new film by Robert Townsend. The Five Heartbeats. The Five Heartbeats, directed by Robert Townsend, released in March 1991, tells the story of a fictional R&B troupe called The Five Heartbeats and their meteoric rise and fall 
in the music industry of the 1950s well into the 70s. Loosely based on the lives of vocal artists The Dells, The Temptations, and others, the movie stars writer-director Robert Townsend, Michael Wright, Leon Robinson, Tico Wells, and Harry Lennox. In this scene, the group is driving through the South to another show when they are pulled over in the dead of night on an isolated road by a white police officer who, after tearing through their belongings, has found the group guilty of being black and is dubious about their claim of being popular radio stars. How do I know y'all a singing group? Why don't y'all sing something? I got nothing but love for you, baby. Got nothing but love for you, baby. I got nothing but love for you, baby. Got nothing but love for you, baby. I've always loved that scene. It's like they're singing the song to Jim Crow himself. And Jimmy don't play that. The tension of that scene, the dread on their faces as they literally sing for their lives, the reality of that situation then and now. None of that is present in Driving Miss Daisy. So the predominantly white critics did not have to deal with white responsibility for the illiteracy of black people, the ongoing lynching of black people, Jim Crow right outside Miss Daisy's door, or a century of state-sponsored terrorism. Well, most of them anyway, to be fair. Richard Natale's review in Movie Line noted that, quote, the film fills in the backgrounds of white characters, but not the black ones. And the South Florida Sun Sentinel's Candace Russell came to the conclusion that, quote, it's one scene after another of a pompous old lady issuing orders and a servant trying to comply by saying yes'm. First, I don't watch a lot of trailers because I want to have a film revealed to me as the director and writer intended it to be. So I probably didn't watch the trailer. And somebody black was in it. I grew up in an era where you knew when Julia was coming on, you knew when I Spy was coming on, you knew when Room 222 was coming on. And so Morgan Freeman was in it. I'm going to go watch it. And uh, I, I don't remember if that's the reasoning, but looking back at who I was at that time, that is probably why I went to see it. Denise James is a nationally acclaimed reporter and media professor at Temple University. But it probably did a lot for a generation of folk to have those actors go through that process. And it probably did serve to remind folk or show folk the possibilities if they get through the pissosity and the hurt and the pain and the angst that they might be able to access other parts of themselves. I think Glory did a better job of that. Or at least let me say, rephrase that. It was an easier meal to consume for me. The prisoner is to be flogged before the entire regiment. Not with a whip, not a man. Excuse us, Sergeant Mulcahy. It's your pleasure, Colonel. Never question my authority in front of others. Sergeant Mulcahy, you may commence. 
I felt affirmed in what I knew and what I knew is possible. Um, I felt affirmed in my affirmed in my anger, in my um, aspirational thinking about how we might connect as humans, but without checking my pistosity at the door. So for example, Denzel, and his anger that came from so many places didn't just come from the place that we presume anger comes from, from 12 years old or 10 or whatever, he was a kid and he had no more family. And so he was just out there and he carried a lot of anger from that. And I'm sure the anger from the, the, the welts on his back from having been whipped and angry at everybody, anybody who got close. And yet there were others like Morgan Freeman who did something different with the anger, who tried to contain enough of it to be in position to benefit from whatever was there there and to fight for whatever was there. All right, all right. Get your hands off me, grave digger. Does the whole world got a stump in your face? You better get your hands off me. Ain't no n around here, you hear me? Oh, I see. So the white man give you a couple of stripes. Next thing you know, you holler and order and everybody around like you the master himself. You ain't nothing but the white man's dog. What are you? So full of hate, you just want to go out and fight everybody. Because you've been whipped and chased by hounds. Well, that might not be living, but it sure as hell ain't dying. And dying's what these white boys been doing for going on three years now. Dying by the thousands. Dying for you, fool. I know, because I dug the graves. And all the time I'm digging, I'm asking myself when, when, oh Lord, is going to be our time. Well, time's coming when we're going to have to ante up. Ante up and kick in like men. Like men! Film critic Tim Cogshell has a lot to add to the idea that righteous anger cleared the space just enough for Usain Palsy to bring a dry white season to the screen. A dry white season set in South Africa in 1976 during the days of apartheid tells the story of a liberal school teacher portrayed by Donald Sutherland, spurred on by a crusading reporter in Susan Sarandon to get involved with the beating of his gardener's son at the hands of the police. The gardener, played by South African playwright Winston Nushuno, looks into the disappearance of his son on his own, only to fall victim to torture and subsequent murder by the police. When Sutherland finally decides enough is enough, he hires lawyer Marlon Brando to bring the case to court. Palsy strived for an accurate depiction of the violence in South Africa at the time as apartheid reform was being demanded on the streets on a daily basis by men, women, and even children. She even went to such lengths as disguising herself as a recording artist to see the riots firsthand. As she speaks about in this 2019 interview with the Toronto International Film Festival. The Dry White Season is about the Soweto uprising that occurred in 76, where they killed so many kids. This is a peaceful demonstration. We know the police will come, but be calm, be cool. Remember, this is a protest march. We are not here to fight the police. Let's go! When I read the book, I saw the movie and I said, 
I'm going to do that. And of course, I had to go to, to South Africa to investigate in order to adapt the book. I needed to fill the country to meet the people. So I went underground. What could I do? The only weapon that I had was my camera and also my pencil, write a script, adapt the script, and, and, and fight to get the money to make the movie. So if I couldn't do that, for me, I, 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 I was thinking I don't deserve to be called a filmmaker. The graphic violence depicted in a dry white season is unrelenting and tragic because it's painfully authentic to the world of South Africa in 1989. In stark contrast to the barbaric birth of a nation, the blood-drenched scenes in this fictional setting are confirmed by the news coverage of the time. Fortunately for Hollywood, the distance provided by the South African tale gave the industry the quote-unquote privilege to shake its fist in opposition to apartheid without reckoning with its own hypocrisy. The fact that white saviors walk on bloody waters eventually to save the day, not unlike the cloaked renegades of Birth of a Nation, probably made the medicine go down a bit smoother. Here's film critic Tim Cogshell. A Dry White Season is an interesting film in that Zan Palsy is the director. Mm -hmm. And and she's doing she's doing a whole bunch of firsts here too. She she drugged Marlon Brando out of retirement for this movie. She's the first black woman director to direct an actor, Marlon, to an Academy Award nomination and to make a film mostly actually set in South Africa. She was engaged in a whole lot of firsts, and that has to be recognized. The film, A Dry White Season itself, it does in fact suffer from from this thing that a few films from that period suffered from. I'm trying to think of the one that uh, that Kevin Klein was in, Cry Freedom, which was a few years earlier, 1987, that Denzel Washington in that film, playing Stephen Bika. He gets nominated for an, uh, support for an Academy Award for that, uh, Denzel Washington. But if you watch that movie, that movie is about Kevin Klein's character. Right, right. It's about, the, it's about the white dude, you know. Right. I mean, we, we see Denzel get beat down and, you know, Stephen Biko, Denzel get beat down and killed and all of that. And it's an amazing performance. But that movie is about the white dude. A Dry White Season kind of suffers from the same thing in that the central characters, the folks that we're following and that we are supposed to empathize with are all white. Donald Sutherland's character I think Susan Sarandon is playing that reporter, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, and we see what happens to these to these African people, these black South Africans, particularly at the beginning of the movie, when they're all attacked at that school, when they go to the little demonstration, they're shot in the back and everything. And we see them suffer all these brutalities uh, and we see them in the docket in court. And, and, and you know, and there, there are a few interesting characters, but essentially we're watching what we're watching is the transformation and the plight of some white folks. Mm -hmm. who are coming to understand where they live and how they're living and what's happening to these black folks. And, and you know, so, so to, to that extent, um, uh, you know, A Dry White Season is a film to talk about. Uh, Uzi and Palsy, very important, but it's still a film about how white people feel. How do you think it compared to Glory? Ah, and then we get to, and then we get to Glory. I love Glory. It's a very powerful film, but even when Glory came out, and these films that we're talking about, all of these films that we're talking about, are all films that came out and that I saw before I was a professional film critic, right? 
Okay. I, I literally didn't start writing about films until 1990. So I saw all of these films, uh, you know, before I was still back in St. Louis. We came from St. Louis. So I, I saw all of these films as a film student. I was in graduate school, but I, I was still, uh, you know, a, a thin ass. I was still thinking about these movies. So even when I saw Glory, this film that is at the end of the day about Matthew Broderick's character. It, at the end of the day, now all these black men in Corden, fantastic, great performances, Denzel. Uh, and Morgan and, and Andre gave us a lot of really, really great stars, this movie. But at the end of the day, this movie is still about this white characters, this Union soldier's transformation uh, into be a, a decent human being. But he still whips Denzel, you know, and, and we are meant to empathize with him as much as we are meant to empathize with uh, these black men. Um, so these are films that I, that I appreciate, Dry White Season, Glory, deeply appreciate both of these films. But I, uh, but I can still see that these films, they have a white filter, if not a white lens. Obviously, Uzian, she that's a black lens. Her lens is black. She's the director, but the filter is white. Uh, Ed Zwick uh, directing Glory, you know, that's, you know, the whole lens is actually white. You know, it's, it's, it's a white lens, that white gaze. And good intentions, good intentions, good intentions. But, you know, there they are. I, I, I just want to follow that thread of centering the whiteness in in these texts and and it seems like a good place to to you know just go ahead and 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 open up the driving miss daisy yeah. competition where arguably and i'm not necessarily making this argument but arguably you have this film with these two leads one black one white how do you fit that into sort of the framework of of what you're talking about with dry white season and glory when morgan freeman is is a voice out front uh, if we're just talking about driving this daisy all by itself as, as as a piece of cinema and writing there are things about that movie that i absolutely love mostly because they ring incredibly true to me because i was born in tennessee in 1961 where the environments, the people, the settings of Driving Miss Daisy were wholly and completely familiar to me. Uh, that film takes place uh, across a long arc of time. I think it maybe starts in the early 40s and right, put right. through that whole Martin Luther King era and all that kind of stuff and, and to, I don't know, maybe the early the 70s. 70. Yeah, the 70s. So, you know, as I'm watching that film, I have, I have to say to myself, I, I know that world. Esther Roll played her maid, uh, Rydella. I think my father's mother, uh, would have been literally Idella worked at this white lady's house, uh, you know, when I was a little bitty kid. The white lady, I remember that white lady who kind of reminded me of Jessica Tandy a little bit, you know. Uh, so, so there's all this stuff going on and driving Miss Daisy that I'm ridiculously familiar with. Okay, then you have this character Hulk played by Morgan Freeman, and and Morgan has this demeanor and this dynamic of a black man that I again understood. I've known black men from that era, you know, born in the 20s or 30s or even earlier sometimes. And I knew a lot who worked for white folks here, there or somewhere and certainly driving uh, around white folks. So, again, Morgan Freeman is walking around in that movie being somebody who I, I, I'm familiar with. And I can't hate on none of that because I actually know this from my existence. But that movie has these moments in it that I dearly love where both Idella, Esther Roll, and Hulk engage in their agency. 
as whole and complete human beings who are not going to let this white lady talk smack to them. She wasn't particularly horrible in the movie anyway, her and Dan Aykroyd, her son. But I know that it's easy to hate a movie like Driving Miss Daisy in the same way, in the same way that we take the task, Sydney 48, I guess who's coming to dinner. You know? Right. But I got to tell you, these are both movies where I can see the problems here, but I can also see the intention here. And, and while that doesn't let the problems off the hook, uh, they're, they're not the movies that I think people came to characterize them as. We agree. It makes Driving Miss Daisy just one too many straws in 1989. To be clear, Daisy doesn't encourage grotesque like those seen in Birth of a Nation. However, despite the acting chops of Freeman and Esther Roll, it is a bit shameful that the characters feel black in face only. I'm saying that, and I like the movie. But change is on the horizon. As a new generation steps in, fed up with the status quo and inspired to do more. And their movies make money, which means Hollywood gets on board. Because whereas the default is whiteness, money is the factor that changes the equation. That's it for this episode of the Class of 1989. Tune in next week for episode four. Oh, Oscar. Class of 1989 is produced by Lynn Webb, Vincent Williams, and Mo Poplar. Written by Lynn Webb, Vincent Williams, and Maurice Poplar. Editing by Lynn Webb. Mixing, mastering by Chris Bonello. Production help from Jordan Aaron. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Matt Keeley, and Annabella Pina. Music by Alexa Gold. Art by Tom Grillo. Special thanks to Dan Christel. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, he's Vincent, I'm Len, and in parting we say, we'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>